Well, I love the song that the band just played by the Zach Brown band, Homegrown. And uh, it's not so much because I, I know anything about small town life in Georgia. Uh, I know nothing about any life in Georgia. I, I don't know much about sipping whiskey out the bottle, living like we'll never die. But uh, I've been listening to that song for a few years now. And what I love about it is they keep coming back to this line right here. I've got everything I need, nothing that I don't. Let me just say that again. I've got everything that I need, nothing that I don't. Now, if I'm honest, I can't quite relate to that line either. <laughs> um, I, 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 like pretty much all of you, have, have plenty of things that I don't need, and I might even argue that sometimes I feel like there are a few things I need that I don't have, but that song is not about reality. Like a lot of music, it's an ideal picture of how life should be. And, and it even pretty much says that in the bridge. Look at this line that it, it just repeats a few times. It's the weight that you carry from the things you think you want. It's the weight that you carry. The, the, this carefree, wonderful, ideal picture of having everything you need and nothing you don't gets crushed under a weight you carry, the weight of wanting more. Well, we, we thought it was perfect to kick off this series, The Myth of More, because I think there is something in all of us that, that thinks that the simple life is best, right? Everything we need, nothing we don't, but we still feel the weight of wanting more. Human beings are complicated people, aren't we? If only we could get out of our own way. Um, when I think about more, I, I think about the downtown Livermore movie theaters. Uh, our, our family, we just live a few miles from downtown Livermore, and so when we go to the movies, we tend to go to that theater. Uh, it's close by, it's convenient, and they have free refills on large popcorn. Now, I don't know, maybe every theater has free refills on large popcorn now. If not, they should, because depending on the theater, popcorn ranges anywhere from $6 to $10 a bag. And uh, want to know what it costs a theater to produce a bag of popcorn? Just for fun, take a guess. Tell somebody next to you what you think it costs to produce one bag of movie popcorn. All right, have you got your guess in? You've told somebody? Let's see how you did. According to Richard McKinsey, a professor at UC in Irvine, it costs the average theater around 90 cents to produce a bag of popcorn. If they charge $7.99, that's a 788% markup. If somebody took movie popcorn to Shark Tank, every shark would be in on that deal. 788%? By the way, this is a perfect time for me to announce we're going to start selling popcorn on Sunday mornings. Uh, anyway, it is expensive. So what my family does, and I imagine many of you do this too, um, we get a large popcorn, and, and then we get these cardboard trays that they give us. Or now at that theater, it's these brown paper bags. And, and we get into the theater, and we divvy up the popcorn. We try to make sure that everybody in our family gets an even amount. And then it's my job to go out to the lobby and get the free refill when we're all out. Now, this works great when there are four of us in our family. Four of us can split a large popcorn, and we get the refill, and we still, even after the refill, have some left over. But what do you think Andrea and I do when we are all alone? Medium popcorn? Maybe a small popcorn? No, because the price of a medium is like 50 cents less than the price of a large. We still get a large popcorn, and we still divvy it up, and we are stuffed. We are usually full by the time the movie is only 10 minutes in. Now, here's what's jacked up about me. I am obsessed 
with making sure we finish that popcorn we have so we can get the free refill that is owed to us even when we are stuffed. I start thinking halfway through the movie, we have all this popcorn in our first bag. What are we going to do? Maybe we can dump some into Andrea's purse so I can go back and get the refill that we're owed? Uh, we are the only people in the history of, uh, of, of the world that sneaks food out of the theater as opposed to into the theater. No, but I think to myself, if I am paying this much for popcorn, then I want to make sure that I have so much popcorn, I am sick. And that's okay, because more is better. And of course, we all realize how ridiculous this is, but we do it because of this myth of more. But, but we don't just do it with popcorn, right? We do it with things that matter. Let's talk about toilet paper. <laughs> do you remember two years ago, March 2020, when stay-at-home orders were issued? Do you remember the mad run on the grocery store, supermarket, Target, Walmart? Everyone sprinted to stores to buy toilet paper. One day in 2020, April 19th, they figured out nearly half of all stories in our country, uh, stores in our country that carry toilet paper were out of stock on the same day. Empty shelves of toilet paper. You would go, you would go on local social media, and somebody, somebody would do a favor and say, "Hey neighbors, I was just at Costco, and they're." toilet paper truck arrived and as of 10 a.m. they had some and you would sprint to your car to get to Costco. There was a whiteboard out in front of some stores with a list of what they were out of stock on. Do you remember this? It was only two years ago. And, and some things made sense, right? Lysol wipes, hand sanitizer. Uh, if people didn't used to buy hand sanitizer and now they're all buying hand sanitizer, it makes sense that they were all out. But toilet paper? Last I checked, we all need toilet paper. We needed it in 2018 just as much as we needed it in 2019, as much as we needed it in 2020. So we're all out. Okay, was it supply chain? Nope. 99% of toilet paper is made in the United States. Was it that factories were shut down? No. According to a North Carolina State University report, a majority of toilet paper factories are located in remote areas with low population densities, meaning employees are less likely to transmit the virus, miss work, and cause production delays. All toilet paper manufacturing facilities in the U.S. were fully operational throughout those early days of COVID. So how could we be all out? The myth of more panic buying and hoarding. One of the things that drives the myth of more is this fear that there will never be enough for us, that the world is going to run out and we won't get what we need. And COVID just amplified it. I turn on the news and all I hear about is how things are going to get hard to get. And so I better go get mine right now. We have these things that trigger panic buying and hoarding. And you would think that our national news would have learned by now to, to knock it off and things will go better. But the truth is, it's not all their fault because even when there's not COVID, we have this thing in us that is worried there will never be enough for us. And we feel that never enough feeling about all sorts of things. You saw in that video earlier, the character who was so consumed with Super Bowl snacks and there not being enough that... But maybe for you, you feel that way about your money. It's going to run out. And with inflation and the cost of living around here, I get it. You might feel like you don't have enough money. Or maybe you feel that in your relationships. Like, like 
Like you're not enough. Your relationships are not enough. You don't have enough relationships. Maybe you are a single person here who really wants to be in a couple. And the clock is ticking and you're wondering, is this ever going to happen for me? Or is this ever going to happen for me again? Or, or you just moved here in the middle of a pandemic. You don't know anyone and it's been hard to meet people. Um, I met somebody who moved here in February of 2020 for a new job. They still have not met any of their coworkers in person. And maybe like this person, you're wondering, will I ever have enough friends or any kind of friendships here? Maybe you feel this with security. Will I ever feel stable enough, safe enough, secure enough in my job, in my home? And, and can I just acknowledge as a, as a pastor who gets to sit and listen to people and hear some of what they're dealing with, some of you feel this with God. Specifically, I know that God is forgiving, but I'm not sure he has enough forgiveness in him for me and what I've done. At what point does he run out of that stuff? I know God is patient and loving, but, but there's a limit to that, right? And you have a scarcity mentality that you live with, not just with tangibles, but even how you understand what God has for you. Now, when we live thinking that there is never enough, it leads us all to do some really stupid things, right? It leads us to overeat, overspend, overtalk, overpromise, overpanic. We over everything. Real quick, if you can't relate to this feeling like there's not enough, can you relate to overdoing it? If so, what's often underneath overdoing something is the fear that there won't be enough. Maybe begin by looking at what you over about. But, but here's what you must know today. This myth of more and the underlying belief that there's not going to be enough can have devastating effects. It's going to affect how you feel about yourself. It affects how you engage other people. Maybe most importantly, it affects what you believe about God and what he's got for you. Because at the core of someone who struggles with feeling like there's never enough is someone who struggles with trust. Strip all the way, uh, uh, all the other explanations for why we ever feel this about food and, and money and our relationships and, and God. And what is beneath the feelings of never having enough is usually a problem with trust. Now, God has another option in mind than for you to go through life believing that there's never going to be enough. And I want to show it to you by showing you a group of people in the Bible who also believed that there was never enough. And I want you to see what God did with them. We find their story in Exodus 16. Take a look at verse 1. We'll put it up. It says, The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin. And in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to Moses and Aaron, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat. We ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Okay, this is an episode today from the story of the Israelites. And they have left Egypt where they were in slavery, and, and they're following Moses through the wilderness to the promised land. Now, what you need to know about the Israelites is that right before this, they have an incredible experience. Right before what we just read, as they're escaping slavery in Egypt, Pharaoh and the Egyptian army, they chase them to the Red Sea, and they are stuck at this dead end of the Red Sea, and God does something amazing. 
The waters start to part, and the Israelites race across the Red Sea to get to the other side. And before the waters close back up, the soldiers chasing them drown. Now, that is not the story I want to tell you today, but it's important that you know that what we're reading came right after this. Because you would think for a second that if you saw God do this and rescue you, you would think that you would be incredibly trusting, wouldn't you? Oh my gosh, God's willing to do that for me and my family? He's got my back. But look again at verse 3 up there. They're hungry, and they say, If only we had died by the Lord's hands in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat, we ate all the food we wanted, but you brought us out into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. And what we see just right away in the first few chapters of uh, verses of chapter 16 are the words of a people who are feeling a lot of different things, but the one thing they're not feeling is a thing you might expect them to feel. They are not people who have a lot of trust. And so God sees that his people are having a very hard time dealing with this, and God seeing this does something incredibly loving. Rather than going, you ungrateful so-and-sos, you distrusting people who I did something pretty spectacular for, it's one of my better miracles, rather than saying, get out, I'm done with you, God comes up with a plan to get them food. Take a look at verses 4 and 5. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. And the people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. And in this way, I will test them and see whether they'll follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they're to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. Okay, so God says to the grumbling people, I will make sure that you don't starve, but here's how I'm going to do it. You people who feel like there is never enough, I am going to only rain down enough food for one day at a time. Just put that on the back burner for a second, okay? Back in the 50s, there was a psychologist, Eric Erickson. That is a really easy name to remember. And, and Erickson created a theory of, of social-emotional development, and he believed that everybody goes through eight stages in their life. Take a look at this on the screen. E each stage has a crisis that you need to resolve in order to move in, in a healthy way to the next stage, like one of the crises is identity versus role confusion. He said that this one happens in your adolescence. Every single adolescent is faced with this challenge to figure out who we are, figure out where we're going. Um, there is this conflict that begins during your adolescence where you think about how you appear to others, right? And you think about what kind of roles you want to play in the adult world someday. And, and maybe you're even confused trying to decide between a few options of who you're going to be. And, and uh, th those of us here uh, who have finished this stage, or maybe we think we finished this stage, um, we remember experimenting with different behaviors and different activities and kind of trying different roles on for size. Another crisis that he talks about comes in middle adulthood from your mid-30s up into your mid-60s. And he calls it generativity versus stagnation. And uh, those are some really big words, but the main question somebody in this question, uh, crisis asks is, what will I give my life to? Will I produce something of real value? And, and in this stage, if you make choices that result in, in society getting better, you will feel a sense of accomplishment and productivity. You feel some generativity. That's what that is. But if you live somewhat self-centered and unwilling to help other people move forward, you're going to begin to feel some dissatisfaction. And, and that's when stagnation sets in. That's what he says. Well, Erickson believed that the very first stage that every 
human goes through, it is the building block for every other stage that comes after it. It all begins with this. It is the crisis he calls trust versus mistrust. And it is when you, at a very early age, first few years of your life, decide whether you can trust someone to meet your basic needs or not. And if your caregivers are consistent sources of food and, and comfort and affection, you should be able to come out of this stage just fine. But if they are neglectful or, or, or maybe even abusive, an infant learns mistrust. Mistrust that the world is an undependable, unpredictable, probably very dangerous place. Every single human being has to resolve this crisis before they can successfully set out to resolve the others. It all begins with developing a sense of trust. All right, Erickson died back in 1994, but if he were standing here right now, I would love to ask him this question. Is it possible that even if you did successfully navigate the crisis of trust versus mistrust in your ones and twos, is it possible that even if your parents were great parents, they gave you everything you needed, is it possible that you could have enough trust broken later in life that it brings the trust versus mistrust crisis right back? See, because my observation is that a lot of people who had great parenting in year one and two still have a hard time trusting because they were hurt later. They were hurt by a teacher or a friend or a spouse or a boss. Many, I people, uh, many people I talk to seem to live in a world full of mistrust. They have a hard time trusting because they've been hurt in the past and they have a hard time trusting because they have found the world to be an unsafe, unpredictable, dangerous place. And they have a hard time trusting because they've been put down for how they feel or what they believe. And, and for many people, they don't trust because they've spent time in a world that feels volatile emotionally, physically. Hey, these people whom God has just led through the Red Sea were born into slavery. Think about that. Their parents were born into slavery. In all likelihood, their grandparents were born slaves. This is all they know. And even if they had a great year one, year two, their lifetime has been filled with nothing but crisis of trust. And they are surrounded by people who have been in the middle of a crisis of trust. And see, it's important to get this about these people. When you have not resolved this crisis and, and you have trouble trusting, here's what you got to know. A miracle like the Red Sea is not enough to suddenly solve all your trust problems. Because you've lived in a world of, of how to mistrust. See, people who have trouble trusting have learned to say, all right, I've been hurt in the past. I refuse to let myself be hurt again. And if I let my guard down just once, I'm going to get stepped on again. And, and if I actually let myself care and I open up to somebody, they will leave. And even if somebody promises me things will change, those changes are probably going to be short-lived. There's no such thing as fair. There's no such thing as somebody else who has my best interests in mind. Everybody's out to get something from me. And, and what we see happening here with God's people, if you can believe this, what they're thinking is it was better to be a slave to Pharaoh with the occasional hot meal than a slave to God where we all die of starvation. And you and I hear that and we think, slave to God, he sets you free. But the person who has a hard time trusting, they don't think that way because they've been living with a crisis of trust. Now, understanding that, look at what God chooses to do to help build trust 
He says, to help build trust into you, I will not give you enough food to last for the entire next year. Or even enough food on Sunday to get you through Saturday, through the whole week. I will rain down from heaven enough bread to last you one day. And then tomorrow, I'll show up and do it again. I will do this every day of the week, except on the sixth day, I want you to take twice as much because I want you to take the seventh day off. But this will be the deal. Five days a week, I want you to gather enough to get you through one day and one day only. And my people, right now, I challenge you. God says, I want to give you a trust test. He even uses that word, take a look, test. Do you believe me when I say that I will still be here tomorrow to give you more bread. Do you believe me enough? Trust me enough to only gather what you need for today. See, what they think they need is food, and they do, and God gives them that. But what they also need as a broken people is a way to learn how to trust for once in their life. And God sets out a way for them to take small steps of trust every single day. And they didn't know this, but God's plan would mean that they'd have to take these small steps of trust in him every day for 40 years. For 40 years, they would have to trust that God would show up and meet their needs again tomorrow. Now, Moses goes and he tells the people about this plan of God's. And verse 10 tells us that as the people hear this plan, they look out across the desert and they see something happening in the clouds. And look at verse 13. It says, that evening, quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost, let's call them frosted flakes, were on the ground <laughs> and they appeared on the desert floor. And when the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what are these frosted flakes? For they did not know what they were. And Moses said to them, oh, that is the bread that the Lord has given you. And this is what the Lord has commanded. Everybody's to gather as much as they need. Take an omer, an omer for each person that you have in your tent. Just, just so you know, an omer, an omer was a unit of measurement. It was a little bit more than two quarts. And, and basically, each person took a heap of this bread. If you had more people in your tent, you would collect more omers. If you had less people, you'd get less omers. But everyone was to collect just enough to get each person and their family through the day. It was an exercise in trust. There'll always be more tomorrow. Okay, one other thing about this bread. If by chance you didn't need your helping, if you had leftovers, you were instructed not to save it. Get rid of it. Throw it away because your job in this whole thing is to trust that God will bring more tomorrow. Now, I think that we would all agree this is a great plan by God, just a brilliant strategy to teach them trust and get them back to where they needed to be. But where this gets very interesting, there are still some people who are panic shoppers, and they can't seem to go along with God's plan to provide this food in the wilderness. Okay, the Bible tells us that some of these people, even though God has promised to deliver enough bread for the day every day, they don't believe it. They just cannot fathom God's willing to come through day after day after day. And so they go outside, and they see all of this manna. That's the name of the bread that's fallen from heaven. And they think of their time gathering food as a trip to Costco. They just start taking bulk amounts of this bread. Why? 
because there's never enough. And what if God doesn't come through? And, and this is important. Having more makes me feel secure. Okay, but isn't it true that it's really a false sense of security? Because as the writer of Ecclesiastes said, time and chance happen to us all. And having a lot doesn't really mean that you're any more secure than when you had none. I mean, Jesus said, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where, where thieves break in and steal. Well, what a few people do in Exodus, they try and take what God has given and they stock it up as security. Now we've got security. By the way, just real quick, what is that, what is that gotta be like to be the one person where all your neighbors are out getting just enough for the day and your kids are watching you wondering why you're not taking just enough for the day because those are the rules and, and God has made it clear to just make sure you pick up enough for the day. What has it gotta be like to still be so concerned about your security and, and tomorrow's day that you take more than everybody else. M my guess is this is the kind of person who says, listen, you don't understand. My trust issues run deep. I will pour everything I have into fighting for me and securing my future because nobody else ever has. And if God were listening to me right, right now and watching, I'm sure that he would be cool with this because with all that's happened in my life, I am an exception. I can't be blamed for not trusting and, and choosing to exempt myself from the test, the challenge for wanting to stock up. I know that God will understand. He wants me to feel good about my situation. I'm going to go with my own plan. I'm sure God wants me to feel secure. And what they don't realize is that while God wants them to have security, two things. Security does not come from having more. Would you say that with me? Can we just all say that together? Security doesn't come from having more. And security only comes from trust. God is not about giving you so much that you're set for life or, or, or catering to your panic tendencies. He is about trust. And so what happens in verse 20 the people who try and do security on their own without the trusting in God thing, they wake up in the morning, they go to their stocked up leftovers, and they find maggots. But the people who do trust and let God give them real security, they get provided for every day. And they start to see their never enough beliefs go away. Now, what can you do to deal with your never enough thing, which means we're really asking, what can you do to deal with your struggle to trust, to get trust going? Two things, I'll give them really quick. They're not complicated. The first, take only what you need. I, I know that you're not gonna do that with everything in your life because you have savings accounts and you have investments and you, like me, figure that, that part of why you have what you'll need is that you're gonna need it someday, right? Part of why you have what you have, you need it someday. Okay, but how about in something you take only what you need. How about you assess what you think you need? Here's something. How about you give what you don't need? I, I, I know you understand this. I'm not going to belabor it. But could it be that God wants to give you real security and that that cannot start in you until you stop trying to create security for yourself, sometimes at the expense of others? The second thing, gratitude. Instead of focusing on what's missing in your life, start enjoying what God has given. 
Now, so you know, gratitude is more than like a word that we use to express this. It is a state of being. It's when you praise God for even the little that you've been given and you rest, you rest, you rest in peace and confidence that God will bring more. I, I want to invite Derek out here. We're, we're, we're going to close with a song, but, but I want to ask you to do something before you stand, before you sing any of that. Would you just take a moment and close your eyes right now? And I want to give you a chance to just do something. Would you, would you take a moment and, and think of where it is that you might be feeling a little bit insecure? Maybe for you, it's a, a relationship that you feel insecure about, or maybe it's a lack of a relationship. Maybe there's a little turmoil at work, and you're just feeling uneasy about it. Maybe you're out of work and you've been out of work for a while and so that's got you insecure. Some of you, it's going to be financial insecurity. Like I said way at the beginning, uh, it, it, it might be that you're insecure about where you stand with God. Does he have enough patience and love and forgiveness for, for even me? Take a second and, and whatever it is for you, would you just in your head silently say to God, I am trusting you, God, that you will be enough, that you will give enough to secure me in this thing. God, whatever you give will be enough. God, I'm trusting you daily to give me enough. And as you pray that, as you're talking with God, Derek is going to sing this song over us. Sacrifice 
Father God, we stand here as people who have more than enough. You provided more than enough for us. Enough for today, enough for tomorrow, enough for the week, the month, the year to come. Let those words, let that truth, let that promise sink into our heart. We love you. And all God's people in this house said, amen. Yeah. Well, hey, have a great day. Have a great Sunday. We'll see you back here next weekend. Amen. Bye.